Hi, it's Grace here. Um, I just wanted to let you know about a very exciting bit of news that we've got to announce today. Um, Our next episode in March will be focusing on the Sarah Everard case and we will be releasing the normal Red Rum episode, which will be about Sarah Everard. And we'll also be releasing a YouTube video of that same episode. So that will have uh, pictures, videos, lots of visual stuff as well. So if you like to watch true crime YouTube videos, head over there. I will leave the link in the show notes to go and subscribe to that channel. We will be releasing a 10-part limited series over there and we're calling it Humans. It will be true stories about the most intriguing parts of human behaviour, the good, the bad and the downright horrific. We'll actually be starting that on February 15th with episode one and then Sarah Everard's episode will be episode two. All of the episodes will be about something different and apart from the Sarah Everard one, we won't be covering any of them on Red Rum. So you'll need to head over there if you want extra episodes. But as always, we will be bringing you a brand new Red Rum episode on the first of the month, every month. This podcast contains some strong themes which are not for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. The two men who had murdered six people, one as young as 18 months, had been found guilty and were sentenced to spend most of their remaining lives in prison. Both began their sentences but continued to protest their innocence. And as time went on, significant concerns began to emerge about the case. The main allegation was that the police had falsified evidence. This is Red Rum, a podcast focusing on the true victims of crime. Episode 42, The Ice Cream Wars. With many thanks to our guest writer for their help with this episode. After World War II, Glasgow was considered to be a far from attractive place. Smog caused by industrial and domestic pollution was so dense that pedestrians could only see a couple of metres in front of them and large areas of slum housing were responsible for poor health outcomes for parts of the population. Glasgow also had a significant problem with crime caused by the historic growth of gangs in deprived areas. In an attempt to build a better country after the ravages of the war, post-war governments pursued a policy of developing new towns and building new homes to try and improve conditions. In Scotland, these initiatives were called schemes. Old slum neighbourhoods were demolished to make way for new roads and flyovers, and new homes and high-rise flats often located on the outskirts of the city were built. Whole areas were cleared and tenants moved far away from where they had been brought up with the promise of clean air, green space for the children to play in and comfortable, warm flats and houses with indoor toilets. While the slums were challenging to live in, Glaswegians had built village-like communities in each of the slum areas, places where you were born, lived, worked and died. In the old communities, everyone knew each other and knew each other's business, and local shops, schools and entertainment were on the doorstep. Churches were full on Sundays, and the local bars were full every day of the week, except for Sunday. 
life in the slums was made easier for the most part because of your neighbours. By the mid-1950s, the first tenants were moving into the new housing in new towns like East Kilbride, just outside the city. They were also moving into the tower blocks and housing schemes of Easter House, Castle Milk and Drum Chapel. The indoor toilets were welcome, as was effective plumbing and drainage, electricity and gas. Tenants were being moved away from the slums. They were also being moved away from their village-like communities into austere housing, often distant from their former home. The city centre and the people they had grown up with and so the community cohesion they had previously enjoyed was lost. Gone were the local shops, pubs, churches, and easy access to the city centre, replaced with housing deserts devoid of any community facilities. By the mid-1960s, 32,000 community homes had been demolished as people moved out. But by this time, dozens of people who had moved to new homes in Easter House queued every morning at the scheme's housing office, requesting transfers out of the area. But it was too late. Their old homes were no longer there and had already been demolished to make way for the planned motorways and dual carriageways round and through the city. They were stuck in the new schemes. There was, however, one thing that had been exported from the slums to the new schemes. Gangs. Gangs had been a feature of Glasgow since the 18th century, either sectarian, based or territorial. By the 1930s, Glasgow had acquired a reputation throughout Britain as a hotbed of gang violence and was regarded at the time as Britain's answer to Chicago, home to some of America's most feared gangsters. The gangs at this time were also referred to as Glasgow Razor Gangs, named after their weapon of choice. The gang culture that was prevalent in the slum areas of central Glasgow was simply exported out to these new areas of housing. So, although many of the gangs changed name, members and location, they still existed. As Britain declined as an industrial nation and unemployment rose, so did gang membership in Glasgow exacerbated by the poorly designed environment that gang members were living in. Throughout the 70s and 80s, the new communities found themselves being torn apart by gangs made up of the young people who had been brought up in these disconnected housing projects. The gangs were dotted about in different areas of the new schemes. In Rookhazy, situated to the northeast of the city, developed for housing as part of the city's Greater Easter House programme, in the 1950s. No fewer than three rival gangs fought each other to gain dominance in each of its three clusters of streets. On the new estates, what began as fighting gangs developed into extortion gangs and then other criminal enterprises, including the operation of lucrative van routes in the city's East End schemes, trading in stolen property and drugs. These van routes developed from the practice of ice cream vans serving the local community. The lack of facilities and shops meant a long journey for many residents of the schemes to buy basic essentials. To begin with, the ice cream vans sold just that, ice cream, and the familiar chimes of the vans would bring children out onto the streets in anticipation. 
Ice cream vans had been used for years by Italian immigrants to sell sweets and cigarettes, and the vans already had the facility to be able to keep chilled goods, like milk, cold. As time went on, it became clear that the residents of the new schemes needed other things like potatoes, washing up liquid, and even the odd electric kettle or piece of household equipment. So the van drivers started to stock and sell these other items, and as trade built, profits also increased. On a successful round, it was possible to make the equivalent today of £600 a week by selling these items as well as ice cream. Some of the less scrupulous drivers could see opportunities to begin making serious additional profits. Rather than selling just food, hardware and ice cream, they started to sell cigarettes and then alcohol. But they didn't have a license because that meant they would have to pay a license fee. And therefore, they were unregulated. Anyone of any age could buy cigarettes and alcohol. Then, the more enterprising van owners started to get their stocks from illegal imports that were free of excise duty, and that meant they earned considerable additional profit. The kitchen hardware sold from the back of vans was now usually stolen goods, again netting considerable profit, until eventually some of the van owners realised that the real money was in drugs. Heroin was a particular problem in Glasgow at that time, and there was a ready market for the product that could be ordered and delivered just outside your front door. There was also the opportunity to wean others into becoming regular customers by initially offering free heroin and then gradually increasing the price as users become hooked. Once the gangs realised the money that could be made from this, they wanted to cream off the profits. If you wanted your van to come into their territory, you paid the price. Even so, some drivers refused to sell the illegal goods, not wanting to break the law or draw young people into the use of drugs. Those who refused to pay first had their vans targeted with malicious vandalism, and then, if they still didn't pay, they were threatened with physical violence. The police could do nothing. The gangs were so powerful and violent, one word to the police from a member of the public or the vendor could result in serious injury, injuries that could be life-changing. The job of an ice cream vendor in 1980s Glasgow was becoming one of the most dangerous occupations in the country. The violence against non-compliant vendors started with bricks and pieces of wood being thrown through van windows as they passed into the area. Then the tyres would be slashed in order to render the vans immobile. By doing this, the gangs expected that the vendor would be off the road for some time and that either the cost of repairs would make it uneconomic for them to come into their area or they would pay the access charge if they did. Eventually, the gangs started to run the vans themselves, cutting out the middleman so that they could take all the profit. There were turf wars with any other gangs that tried to muscle in on their area, and attacks on van drivers and raids on opposition vans became more common. Finally, they started to use guns and sawn-off shotguns to deter rivals from entering their area. In one attack, an 18-year-old vendor employee was permanently disabled after being shot in the shoulder by a 23-year-old ice cream gang member. This particular gang member felt so guilty about what he'd done that he actually attempted suicide. 
In another incident, an ice cream van was robbed by two men with, quote, a plastic bag filled with two revolvers in it. They planned to damage ice cream vans in the cattle milk district by shooting at it. The violence became so intense that the Glasgow Herald described it as mafia-style warfare. 18-year-old Andrew Doyle was different. Nicknamed Fat Boy, he was a large and heavy set man who was hardworking and a friendly van driver for the Marchetti brothers, who had been running a respected ice cream business in the city for over 20 years. His sheer size intimidated the initiators into not attacking him. He lived with mum, dad and four brothers in a three-bedroomed top-floor flat in Bankhead Street, Rukhazy. His sister had moved out and started her own family. Andrew wanted to make a go of the ice cream vending business and had a regular established round through Gotham Lock. He drove the van and a teenager served the customers. At first, things went well for him and he was earning a good profit on his sales of ice cream and groceries, all legitimately supplied. Then... He was approached by gangland members who told him to take their duty-free cigarettes and alcohol to sell on his round. They also told him that the next time he came, they would have heroin for him to sell to anyone who approached his van and asked for it. He could have made a large profit if he had chosen to do as they said, but he refused, preferring instead to stay on the right side of the law, even if this was the wrong side of the gangs. The gangs tried to persuade him again and again, but Andrew would not budge, even after a gang member shot at him through the windscreen of his van. Andrew just jumped out of his van and chased the attacker away. His large figure was pretty scary when he was running at you. But the gangs weren't put off that easily because by refusing to sell their drugs, Andrew had directly challenged their authority, something the gang could never allow in case news spread to other members of the public they dealt with on a daily basis. And importantly, if the other gangs got to hear about this, they knew they would be finished. Meanwhile, Glasgow's serious crime squad were investigating the intimidation and violence and were getting nowhere. No one would talk to them for fear of what would happen to them if they did. On one occasion... An undercover police team using a borrowed ice cream van were ambushed in Bull Dragon Road, Easter House, by two masked thugs with batons. They did arrest the two men, but other than that, they made no progress in breaking up the gangs. After a day out on the road, Andrew returned home to the top-floor three-bedroom flat in Bankhead Street, Brookhazy, where he lived with his parents and brothers. It was the evening of the 15th of April, 1984. Tonight was a special night. They were having a celebration with his sister, her 18-month-old baby and his brothers. A total of nine people eating a meal, joking and laughing, and finally falling asleep in the flat. A few hours later, at 2am on the 16th of April, someone climbed the stairs to Andrew's top-floor flat. That person was carrying a petrol can. They poured the petrol over an outside store cupboard and lit the petrol. It ignited instantly and the flames turned into black, choking smoke. 
Lillian, Andrew's mother, woke as her daughter started to scream at the sight of the black smoke entering the room. And Andrew's father, James, rushed out of the bed thinking there was something wrong with his baby grandson, Christina's son. One witness described the scene, quote, There was a loud banging, a smashing, a breaking of glass. We heard the screaming, the screaming and shouting for help. There was a boy who ran right up the stairs trying to help, but he couldn't get in because the flames were too fierce. The guy was beaten back right away. There was no way he could get in. The black smoke itself, because when a couple of the family were brought out, some of them were only in their shorts and their whole bodies were black, covered in smoke, end quote. Although neighbours called the fire service and the young man had run up the stairs to try and get into the flat to help, he was beaten back by the fire and the thick smoke. In the ensuing fire, Andrew's 53-year-old father, James, Andrew's sister, 25-year-old Christina Halleron, her 18-month-old son, Mark, and two of Andrew's brothers, 23-year-old James and 14-year-old Tony, were all killed at the scene. Lillian and her two sons were able to escape, one jumping over 11 metres and breaking his leg in the process, but he was able to get to safety. Andrew got out and was taken to hospital, but soon after, he died of smoke inhalation. This was murder. The story of what happened to Andrew's family travelled rapidly around Scotland, with people unable to grasp what had happened. As the news broke the day after, newspapers published the story, news channels broadcast the graphic footage of the burnt-out flat, and distraught relatives, friends and neighbours called in to local radio phone-ins to ask, how could this happen here? How could this happen in our community? All over Scotland, people could not believe the brutality of this gang warfare. The pressure was now on the police to get results. They needed to find out who was guilty of setting the fire and killing innocent people, and they needed to do it quickly. But people living close to the incident were even more tight-lipped than they had previously been. They knew that one word to the police could also spell the end for them. 50 police officers were drafted in on the case. They interviewed 1,500 people. They took over 4,000 statements. But there was nothing that could lead them to the killers. Motive was pretty obvious given previous intimidation, and it was clear it was one of the local gangs, and probably the one that worked this scheme. But getting evidence that made that link was almost impossible. It looked like the perpetrators would get away with it. No one would talk. But then, one afternoon, the police got a break. A man called William Love was being held in Barlini Prison on suspicion of armed robbery. Andrew's flat overlooked Barlini Prison. William asked to see the police, and so officers from the investigation team travelled to prison to see him. What he told the police would turn the case around. William said that he had been part of a campaign of harassment run against Andrew by a local hard man, Tommy Campbell, known locally as TC. Tommy, or TC, was infamous to police in the area as a violent gang leader and criminal who had been involved in extreme violence against rival gangs, using staves, axes and knives. 
TC had a well-deserved reputation for being able to tackle his rivals, either with weapons or with his bare hands, and he'd seen a lot of his fellow gang members and enemies seriously injured in fights, and some of them had died. TC himself had been close to death after one fight he'd been in. Police considered him the hardest of the hard, and a very likely candidate for the attack. William's statement confirmed it. William told police that three weeks before the fire, he had overheard a conversation in a local bar, the Netherfield. In the conversation, William claimed that TC had described his plans for setting a fire at the door of the flat where Andrew lived, with the aim of giving Andrew a fright. If this was true, the police had their first firm lead in the case, and although William had a string of convictions for serious crimes and was facing a long sentence on the armed robbery charge, after William had given this information, they suddenly dropped objections to his bail and William was freed. The police claimed this was for his own protection. The information the police had from William was a good piece of circumstantial evidence, but not enough to get a conviction on its own. However, It was a good start and gave the police an indication of who else might be involved so that they could start exploring further leads. Then, the police got a second break. The additional evidence they needed to bring a prosecution against TC was supplied by another known criminal, Joseph Granger. Whilst being brought in for an unconnected offence, Granger told officers he had also overheard the plot to set a fire at Andrew's flat but in a different bar, on a different night, and with different people. A man called Joseph Steele, another criminal and known associate of TC's, discussed the plan with Granger and a number of other people. Following that conversation, Granger told the police he went to look at Andrew's flat on the same night that he heard about the plot, and a week before the fire. In a written and signed statement to police, Granger claimed that on the night of the fire, TC, Joseph Steele and another man were all at the scene, standing by a wall near Andrew's flat. Granger joined them at some point and then the four of them went to the stairs of the flat. And while Granger kept watch for any police or potential witnesses, Joseph Steele and the other man climbed the stairs to the flat. They then doused the door of the flat with petrol and lit the fire. By making this statement to police, Granger had voluntarily implicated himself in a multiple murder for which he would go to prison. But the police released him in the same way they had released William Love. The police had the evidence they needed to search the homes of TC and Joseph Steele and arrived early the next morning. TC was in bed with his wife next to him and his child in the room next door when the police arrived to search his flat. During the search, more evidence was discovered. A piece of paper was found, and on one side of it was a join-the-dots game, with TC's and his wife's initials on it, suggesting they had been using the piece of paper to play the game. On the other side was a photocopied map of the neighbourhood where Andrew lived on Bankhead Street, the site of the fatal firebombing, circled in blue. As the police arrested TC on suspicion of murder at his home, he gave them another piece of invaluable evidence. He told the police that, quote, 
I only wanted the van shot up. The fire at Fat Boys was only meant to be a frightener which went too far. End quote. At Joseph Steele's home, like TC, he was in bed when the police came to search his home. Joseph Steele was also arrested and was bundled into a police vehicle, accompanied by four officers as they drove to the police station. Whilst he was on his way to the station, Joseph Steele said to the four officers, I'm not the one that lit the match. He had effectively incriminated himself for murder and handed himself a long police sentence out of his own mouth. This was another great break for the police and the driver of the police vehicle wrote down Joseph Steele's words which would be used as evidence at his trial. The police had William Love's statement that he overheard TC planning the firebombing. There was also Granger's statement that on a different night in a different bar, he had heard Joseph Steele planning the arson attack and Granger had admitted to being involved. There was TC's only meant to be a frightener statement and Joseph Steele's statement that he wasn't the one who lit the match. There was enough evidence to prosecute and so the Ice Cream Wars trial started at Glasgow High Court in the autumn of 1984. But, The prosecution didn't go as smoothly as police had hoped. The trial lasted for 27 days and, as well as TC and Joseph Steele, there were four others in the dock with them for less serious offences. The prosecution portrayed Joseph Steele and Tommy TC Campbell as known violent offenders. They showed that TC had a history of being an enforcer and Joseph Steele was his sidekick and there was a record of violence, both having already served separate prison sentences in the 1970s and early 1980s. The fact that TC had entered the ice cream van business in 1983 and was keen to protect his patch was highlighted. Then the prosecution came to Joseph Granger's evidence, which was crucial to their case. He had told the police that he had overheard the arrangements for the firebombing being made in the pub and then had acted as lookout for TC and Joseph Steele on the night. But when he was asked about this in court, he denied everything. He said he had not heard any discussion about the firebombing of Andrew's flat, and that he had not acted as lookout for TC or Joseph Steele. When he was asked about his signed statement, he said he only wrote and signed it because he had been under pressure from the police, and that they had told him exactly what to write. Later, he also claimed that a signed statement by his girlfriend stating that he was out on the night of the fire was also untrue and that the two of them went home together that night after having been in the Netherfield bar for just an hour. Immediately after Granger had given evidence and was leaving the court, he was arrested by police for perjury. William Love now became the star witness He was the only person who claimed to have witnessed the plotting for the lethal fire at Andrew's flat. Without William, the police did not have a case. But William stuck to his story. The judge made clear to the jury that as Granger had denied that he had heard any of the planning, if the jury brought in a guilty verdict, they would be relying entirely on convicted criminal William Love's evidence. The statements made by TC and Joseph Steele as they were arrested by the police were not enough on their own to bring in a guilty verdict. 
the jury must, without doubt, believe William Love to find the defendants guilty. The jury was out for almost two days and returned with guilty verdicts. Both TC and Joseph Steele were sentenced to life imprisonment. Four others, Thomas Gray, Thomas Laity, George Reed and John Tommy, received shorter sentences for the assault and attempted murder in relation to the intimidation of vendors. TC was given a further 10 years for blasting a van with a shotgun. The two firebombers, TC and Joseph Steele, who had murdered six people, one as young as 18 months, had been found guilty and were sentenced to spend most of their remaining lives in prison. Both began their sentences but continued to protest their innocence and as time went on, significant concerns began to emerge about the case. The main allegation was that the police had falsified evidence. There was also talk that a Glasgow crime boss, Thomas McGraw, known as the licensee, had fitted up TC and Joseph Steele so that he could move in on growing business selling goods around the Glasgow schemes. The rumours were that in the early 80s, McGraw had got his name, the licensee, for two reasons. Firstly, because he owned Glasgow's Caravel Bar, which was believed to be the centre of a drugs-running operation, although nothing was ever proved by police. At the time of TC and Joseph Steele's sentencing, it was a hive of activity. The second reason McGraw had earned his nickname the licensee was that his enemies believed the Strathclyde police had effectively given him a license to operate. It is true that, with TC and Joseph Steele inside, McGraw went on to become one of the most feared gangsters in Glasgow, taking control of ice cream vans, taxi firms, and delivering large amounts of heroin. Eventually, the caravel would be attacked with a grenade that failed to explode, presumably thrown by a rival gang. And finally, the bar was burnt to the ground in an alleged revenge attack. However, in Scottish legal circles, the main concern about the conviction was because, as the judge had pointed out to the jury, it relied totally on William Love's supposed eyewitness testimony, the testimony of a convicted criminal who was released soon after giving this statement. Channel 4's Trial and Error documentary broadcast in 1998, explored the evidence behind the convictions and what they found was interesting. TC admitted his violent past on camera but claimed that by the time of the firebombing, all that was behind him because he had settled down, got married and had children. He did have an ice cream business but there was no evidence to suggest it was anything other than legitimate. TC claims that the police just wouldn't believe that he had changed, which made him a suspect for any illegal activity that took place in the area. The questions had to be asked, would an experienced criminal like Tommy TC Campbell confess in front of police officers that he had firebombed Andrew's flat by telling them, quote, it was only meant to be a frightener and thereby condemning himself to life imprisonment? And if TC had committed the firebombing, would he leave incriminating evidence at his home in the form of a map showing the exact location where the attack took place so that the police could easily find it? Wouldn't TC, with all his criminal experience, ensure that his home was entirely clear 
of any incriminating evidence. Wouldn't this prime suspect have arranged a cast-iron alibi with witnesses who could vouch for his whereabouts? Then there was Granger's statement. He claimed his evidence was beaten out of him. He was, after all, another experienced criminal and unlikely to make a statement to police that would incriminate himself in murder and ensure a long prison sentence. Next was... Joseph Steele's original statement that it wasn't me that lit the match. This was always going to be questioned because, yet again, it appears illogical for Joseph Steele to incriminate himself for murder in the same way it was claimed TC had done, except this time it was in front of four police officers. It also seems strange that, in this situation, it was the driver of the police vehicle who was the officer to record the admission. That would involve him bringing his vehicle to stop in a safe place, getting out a notebook, writing the statement down, and then resuming the journey to the police station, all while three other police officers were sitting in the vehicle doing nothing. And then there's William Love's evidence. Channel 4's trial and error programme identifies five reasons why William's evidence was questionable. The first was that, on no fewer than three previous occasions, William Love had been found guilty of perverting the course of justice. Secondly, William eventually admitted that it was he who carried out the shotgun attack on Andrew's van, and that he was acting on instruction, but the instruction was not from TC or Joseph Steele. Thirdly, William later admitted that he had lied at the trial of TC and Joseph Steele. He said, quote, I've never heard anybody discussing anything about fires. It was never discussed. It was fabricated information. Fourth, Frank Falloon, who had been in prison with William Love at the same time, told trial and error that William Love had told him at the time that the police had offered him a deal on the armed robbery charge and that if he agreed, the charges against William would be dropped. And fifth, William had already given conflicting accounts of the conspiracy plot on the 23rd of March in the Netherfield pub. In one statement, he said that he heard the plot to firebomb the door, yet in another account, he says he wasn't even there, but just heard about it. And trial and error discovered yet another version William Love gave to police. In this version, he is in the bar and hears the details about the plan. In this later statement, he gives the date that he overhears this conversation as the weekend of the 7th to the 8th of April, not March 23rd, as was in his original statement. We know this account in his statement is a lie because William Love himself was in prison on those dates. He couldn't have been in the Netherfield bar because he was behind bars in Barlini prison awaiting trial for that armed robbery charge. And yet... That is what his sworn statement to the court stated. That is what the jury believed. A perjury that could have been checked by the police, the prosecution and the defence simply by examining the prison records. So it was impossible for William Love to have heard what he claims to have heard in the Netherfield Bar on the 7th or 8th of April 1984. With all these question marks about the evidence mounting up, T.C. and Joseph Steele were determined to free themselves. In 1989, 
on the basis of new evidence, they appealed their sentence, but that appeal failed. Then in 1992, two journalists, Douglas Skeleton and Lisa Brownlie, wrote a book called Frightener. It detailed the conflicts and the trial. They interviewed William Love for the book, and he stated and later signed affidavits attesting that he had lied under oath. In William Love's own words, quote, I did so because it suited my own selfish purposes. The explanation as to why I gave this evidence is this. The police pressured me to give evidence against Tommy, who they clearly believed was guilty of arranging to set fire to Andrew's house, end quote. With this admission, T.C. and Joseph Steele started campaigns of protest to publicise their innocence. Whilst on leave from prison, Joseph Steele held a rooftop protest at his mother's house before allowing the police to rearrest him and peacefully return to prison. His aim was not to escape capture, it was to bring his case to the notice of the general public, which he achieved. TC protested from inside Barlini prison, through hunger strikes and refusing to cut his hair. In 1993, on a supervised prison release to visit his mother in Gathamlock, Joseph Steele gave his police escort the slip and then he travelled to London, where he superglued himself to the railings outside Buckingham Palace. Again, returning to prison peacefully once the London Fire Service had managed to detach him from the railings and not before he had given several interviews in which he insisted he was innocent of the murders. Despite the protests of both men, it was not until 1997 that the Secretary of State for Scotland granted interim freedom to both TC and Joseph Steele pending a second appeal. But even in the light of fresh evidence relating to William Love's testimony in February 1998, TC and Joseph Steele lost their appeal when the three Court of Appeal judges reached a split decision, two against the appeal and one for. In December 1998, the Scottish Secretary rejected a petition to refer the case to the appeal court again, and despite all the evidence mounting up that brought into question the original conviction, it appeared that TC and Joseph Steele were not going to be released. Then, in July 2000, the new Scottish Criminal Cases Review Commission looked into the case. They began their investigation by examining all the material from the Crown Office and government correspondence. And in November 2001, the Commission referred the case to the Appeal Court for the third time. In December 2001, TC and Joseph Steele were again freed, pending the outcome of the appeal. It took three years for the appeal to be heard by the Appeal Court, where Lord Gill, Lord Maclean, and Lord McFadden quashed the convictions as a result of hearing. The original trial judge criticised the Appeal Court's decision to quash the convictions, but in March 2004, TC and Joseph Steele were finally freed. TC immediately called for a fresh investigation of the murder of Andrew's family accusing Tom McGraw, both of the original murders and of running a 20-year campaign to keep TC and Joseph Steele in prison. That never happened, partly because of the time that had elapsed 
and partly because of the continuing animosity between TC and McGraw, which led to a series of alleged tit-for-tat incidents and intimidations between the two. Thomas T.C. Campbell died of natural causes at his home in June 2019. Both men served a full 20 years before successfully overturning their convictions. But who did bomb Andrew's flat? Trial and error discovered a number of leads that were never followed up. On the night of the fire, a cashier at a nearby garage to Andrew's flat was approached by a young man who wanted to fill a petrol can. She was suspicious and refused to serve him. Trial and error also discovered that, as the fire took hold, a witness saw a vehicle drive away from the scene. The driver lost control and it crashed. The occupants then ran away on foot. The witness saw the men and could describe them, could smell petrol, and there was an empty can of petrol on the back seat, and none of the men looked like either TC or Joseph Steele. But the likelihood is that we will never know who torched Andrew Doyle's flat, that the relatives and friends of Andrew's family will never know, and the Scottish public and Scottish judicial system will never know who murdered six law-abiding, innocent individuals, including an 18-month-old baby, on the 16th of April, 1984. Red Rum is written and presented by Grace Cordell. It's produced by Russ Clark and Grace Cordell. Music and sound design by Russ Clark. Title music by Benjamin James.